Hey guys, it's your host Sam Thornton. Before this episode begins, I wanted to promote the DL Sports Instagram page. The page has a wide variety of sports content with graphics, reels, highlights, and more. So before this episode begins, what I want you guys to do is go ahead, pull out your phone, and follow the Instagram page at DLSportsCom. That's at DLSportsCom. Thanks guys, and enjoy the show. On today's episode of On The Deal Podcast, we will go over the game of the weekend, and yes, I'm still trying to comprehend my pain and misery from Alabama versus Tennessee. There's a lot to cover in that regard. We're going to talk about the Carolina Panthers' struggles, the firing of Matt Rule, Robbie Anderson drama, Christian McCaffrey trade rumors, the whole nine yards for the Carolina Panthers. It's only been two weeks since the last episode of this podcast, and literally everything has changed for the Carolina Panthers franchise during that time frame. To finish up the show, I'm going to give you guys five bold takes for this NHL season that I'm going to predict as the season has just gotten underway. As always, guys, we have lots to cover, so let's not waste any time and jump right into this episode. Welcome to episode number 15 of On The Deal Podcast, and after 15 years, the Tennessee Volunteers have finally taken down the Alabama Crimson Tide in an absolute thriller of a game at Tennessee 52, Alabama 49. The 15-year win streak was the third longest active winning streak between two SEC teams in college football, 38 overall wins for the Volunteers over the Crimson Tide, which is the most by any program against Alabama. And wait, there's more. There's a lot more. Lots of crazy stats from this game. Tennessee's 52 points were the most scored points against Alabama in over 100 years. The last team to score over 50 points against Alabama was in 1907, and it was the University of the South, Sewanee. It was also the most points Alabama has scored in a loss. Here's where you have to give Tennessee their respect. They are the first team in college football history to start their season 6-0 with four wins over ranked teams while scoring 30-plus points in all six of those games. I'm also going to shout out the Tennessee fans. They've been waiting so long for this moment. They've celebrated absolutely accordingly. Of course, I've been around Alabama fans who say, oh, they don't know how to behave. They don't know what winning is. And yeah, I can get that in some regard because we win a lot and we know how to handle it. You have to think about it in their shoes. You know, whatever, man. It was their Super Bowl. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt because this is probably, you know, it really is. This is their biggest win in program history. They took the goalposts out of the stadium, threw it into the Tennessee River, rushed the field as soon as the game concluded. You know, good for them. It's okay. We're going to see you in December. At least I really, really hope so. I really hope that they go down to Athens and beat Georgia on November 5th. That is going to be a crazy game. Cannot wait to watch that. But I want to see Tennessee again. We've done the same song and dance with Georgia over the last couple years. And I think Alabama fans want to see Tennessee. It's not that we're afraid of playing Georgia. We're not afraid to play anybody. But we want that revenge. We want to smoke a cigar inside of Mercedes-Benz Stadium. That's what we want. Now, what went wrong for Alabama in this game? 
Well, a lot of things went wrong. Before this game started on Saturday, I wrote an article on the keys to an Alabama victory on Saturday. I wrote it on dlsportsmedia.com. Go check it out if you want to fact check me on this. There were three points that I mentioned. Number one, Bryce Young needed to be on the field, and thank God he was because he was an absolute difference maker in this game. He played fantastic, is still the best player in the country. There wasn't anything else he could have done in this game. He played terrifically. Number two, Alabama's secondary needed to step up and lock down the big plays, and that surely didn't happen. The combination of Hendon Hooker and Jalen Hyatt, what they did in this game, which we're going to talk about later on in this episode, that did not happen for them. Number three, special teams. Didn't play well. You had the missed field goal from Will Reichert to win the game from 50 yards out, and then you had some mishaps, particularly when it was 21-10, to 10, and the freshman decides to touch the ball on the ground after a fair catch was made. Or not a fair catch, a wave-off was made by Kool-Aid McKinstry to not touch the ball. He goes up and touches the ball, gives the ball back to Tennessee, literally gifting them a touchdown. So yes, a lot of these things went wrong for Alabama. Despite all of that, they only lost by three to a terrific Tennessee team. These weren't the only problems, though. Another issue on, on the defensive end was the defensive line. I mean, where were they all game long? Will Anderson. I don't think I heard the announcers say his name once the entire game. Not once. The best player in the country did nothing. The only play that the defensive line made was when they recovered the football by Hendon Hooker, which was a fluke play because he just mishandled the football, which resulted in a touchdown for Alabama. Hendon Hooker had all the time in the world on Saturday. He was too comfortable in the pocket. He was escaping the pocket with ease. There was no pressure applied to him. And that's something that Alabama had to do to make him uncomfortable. Dallas Turner, everybody else, where were they at? There was nobody there. This was supposed to be the most feared defensive line in the entire country. So why, answer me this riddle, why do they go invisible on the road every single game? Every single road game they play last year, this year, look at it. There is no pressure applied to the quarterbacks playing. You're supposed to be the difference maker for this team, and you're getting bullied in the trenches straight up. You have to give credit to the O-line of Tennessee, because when you're watching that tape, you're watching those replays, you see that they are extremely tactical with their protection schemes. Shifting players around throughout the line, throughout the game, protecting their QB, and it worked. It absolutely worked. Probably the biggest problem was penalties. I mean, good lord. In the first quarter alone, they had nine penalties. Nine. And they averaged six on the season, which is horrible more than itself. They've committed a record 17 penalties in that game. The most ever in program history. Ever. Ever in Alabama history. They gave up 130 yards despite controlling possession over four quarters. Alabama had 37 minutes to Tennessee's 22. And a lot of that has to do with Tennessee's up-pace offense. Alabama ranks dead last in the FBS with 66 flags this year. 131 out of 131. We're also going to talk about the officiating a little bit here, but there's no excuses for that many flags. There's not. You can blame the refs all day long, 
but a lot of those were not on them. Tennessee was the first team to capitalize on these penalties against Texas. Alabama had 15 penalties and Texas only scored 19 points. A big part of those 52 points, it was the Alabama secondary. A breakdown of the secondary unit. Kool-Aid McKintree was targeted one time the entire game. One time. Shows you his dominance on the back end there. Tyrion Arnold was targeted six times. And yeah, he struggled, but the guy who deflated the safety slot was DeMarco Hellams. DeMarco Hellams was targeted nine times on Saturday and got burned on almost every single play. Every single deep ball. I don't care if he had that big of a pick in the second half. He played awful, plain and simple. Everybody noticed that. Shannon Sharp, Ryan Clark, all of these big football analysts on ESPN, Fox, they were tweeting about number two. If you're going to dissect his play, I've seen a lot of people online plead for Eli Ricks to step in and play over him. And at this point, why not? Let's give him that shot that he's been waiting for. Or if you aren't going to start him, let's move Helms to star or somewhere else because he cannot play that far back in the secondary anymore. He cannot. Every single team is going to target him from here on out. They're going to know it works, and they're going to execute it. Anytime there is a big play on this coverage, he was the one guarding him. He didn't play well against A&M either. I'm going to give Arnold a break because he's a true freshman. He's been playing outstanding this season. Came in took that slot away from a lot of talented players. You cannot blame him. He's growing. Kool-Aid had a lot of those games last year. All of these suggestions bring up the man in charge of that defense, Pete Golding. 52 points. 52 points, Pete. How can you score 49 points on the road against the number six team in the country and not win? There is no sense of intensity from the defensive side of the ball. Like, the only positive you can allude to is the run defense. Hooker, again, plenty of time on passes. Found receivers open almost all the time. There was one slant play that Tennessee ran almost every single time that cut up the defense for seven or eight yards on every single set of downs. It was so frustrating to watch because the secondary was sagging not to look at the big plays, and the D-line wasn't getting the hooker. Just a mess. Golding on the road hasn't been great. He stepped up at the end of last year, which erased those insecurities presented by Alabama fans at the time. But now, they're here. They are back. They're back in full force. Early on in this game, Bill O'Brien wasn't calling a good game. He picked it up in the third quarter for sure, but there was one instance that had everybody questioning the thought process of the offense. Before records miskicked to try to win the game, Alabama was driving down the field they were on the Vols, 32, 38 seconds left. You know, everybody thought overtime. Overtime looked like the worst case scenario, and they decided to throw the ball three times in a row. Why? Yeah, I know. We got an easy drop pass right in the slot there. I think he was on third down. Should have been a first down, but it wasn't. First, if you run the ball on first and second down, you can pick up some extra yardage, get a better spot for a field goal. And second, you can run out the clock so that you don't have any time left on the clock for Tennessee's insanely fast-paced offense to do something. That was the first question that the local press asked Saban at the press conference. His response was that we were trying to move it closer, and they thought they were blitzing and loading it back in the box a lot. We thought we could make plays in the passing game. And I get it. The pass game was dominant for Alabama all game long, as put on by 
Bryce Young at that quarterback position. But at that point, you have to worry about getting a few extra yards and managing the clock. And you'd be putting the ball in the hands of Jameer Gibbs, who is your best player. And who knows? He could have made a big play. You never know those kind of things. It might happen. You learn from these mistakes. The Alabama defense was extremely soft at the end of the game. I don't know how they let up 50 yards or wherever it was in 20 seconds. That was ridiculous. After everything that had happened in that game, they go down and just blow it. They blew it. And who else but Helms was on that coverage for that deep ball that set up Tennessee's game-winning field goal? Who else? Let's talk about what Tennessee did well in this game. For one, they managed the pace of the game. I kind of talked about it earlier. They had the ball for 22 and a half minutes and put up 52 points. That screams efficiency. That's pure efficiency right there. Within the first five minutes, you knew they were going to dictate the pace of this game with their quick huddle offense. Alabama was not ready for it. They were not conditioned for it. It threw them for an absolute loop in the first few minutes of the game, and they were not ready at all for what was about to hit them. I was never worried that Alabama wasn't going to fight back and make it a game, but it all goes back to the Alabama secondary. They knew the weak lines on the secondary, and they had to expose them. Most notably, it was Jalen Hyatt. I mean, this kid had a career day. Six receptions, five touchdowns, 207 yards. This was a single-game record for most touchdowns in school history. I mean, five touchdowns. Five. Against Alabama's defense? A defense that I thought was going to be world-class? Respect. Respect to him. I kept watching him go and go and just shook my head every single time. His draft stock is going to be exponentially high now. Reminds me a lot of the same type of frame, same type of players, Devontae Smith. I'm not saying that he's going to be Devontae Smith. I'm just saying his frame and the way he burns people down the field like that, that's crazy. He's around 5'11 or 6 feet tall, 165. That's, you know, it's crazy that he was able to do that on the field against Alabama's secondary. He was an absolute beast. There were 19 NFL scouts with seats in the press box for the game. Teams from all over the league. With Cedric Tillman out of the game, you knew that Hyatt was going to be targeted all night long. And good for him. He took advantage of it. Finally, and I hate to talk about this, I have to bring it up. I really do not want to talk about this. It just sucks to throw them under the bus. But the officiating was horrible. I don't care who you pull for. I don't care if you hate Alabama. I don't care if you love Alabama. If you watch this game from an objective viewpoint, you know this game was horribly officiated towards Alabama, and it's not even funny. We can start with the targeting review against Bryce Young. Please tell me how that's not the definition of targeting. Tell me that's not targeting. Go look at the video online right now. Stop what you're doing. Go to Twitter. Go to the search bar. Look up Alabama Bryce Young targeting. The Tennessee player launches himself, leaves the ground, Leans with the crown of his helmet, makes face-to-face contact with Bryce's helmet first, doesn't hit any other part of his body. I really cannot express how horrible that call was. That might have been the worst one of the night, and there were a lot of bad ones. It was textbook, and I mean textbook targeting. If that was Brady in the NFL, there would have been a fine and a suspension. There was a clear fumble that occurred in the fourth quarter against Tennessee that Alabama recovered 
and the refs didn't even take a look at it. And I don't know if it was forward progress. It all happened really fast, but I was shocked that they didn't take a second look at that. Not one. Not one look in which the ball obviously came out. But every single time Alabama made a damn reception in this game, they would spend at least two or three minutes taking a look at it to make sure he caught it. I remember the Ja'Cory Brooks touchdown in the first half, or I don't even remember when it was, clearly catches the ball. Spent five minutes looking at it. Pass interference calls. I mean, wow. That was a bad one. That was prop. I take it back. These were the worst. Look at these two plays side by side. In the third quarter, Alabama trails 34-28. Bryce throws a ball down to Isaiah Bond on the sideline for about 30 yards. Gets thrown down by his face mask onto the ground. No call. Alabama did end up scoring on that drive, but in the moment, no call. Fast forward to the fourth quarter. There's four minutes left. Fourth and five for Tennessee. Hooker throws a ball towards the end zone. This is the one that everybody's talking about. The ball is tipped in the air. Alabama completes an interception in the end zone. Cooley McKentry has it, returns it down the field to the Tennessee 10-yard line. But wait, hold on. There's a flag. Pass interference, Tyrion Arnold. What an absolute clown show of a call. That was lockdown defense. He's behind the Tennessee receiver. No grabbing, no holding. Makes a play on the ball first, but somehow it's pass interference, and the one I just talked about wasn't. And those listening are going to say I'm overreacting, but I promise you, I'm not. These are just the facts. Go look at the tape and you'll see it. Yes, I'm an Alabama fan. Yes, I go to school here. That was a clear missed call. I hope those refs, for any school's sake, not just Alabama, not just Tennessee, they should not be refing again. I know the SEC is going to take a look at it. The commissioner came out and said, we need to take a look at this game. The outcome's not going to be dictated differently. But there's going to be a lot of review going on there. Finally, the ground makers not knowing what down it is. What was that all about? Just when you thought he was going bad, the refs don't even know what down it is. That was the funniest one because here you are. You're already pissed off at the refs. You're pissed off at the way the game is going. And... You pick up a first down, pause the game for five minutes trying to figure out what freaking down it is because they were adamant that they was down ahead. What ref crew has to go and review what down it is? Anyways, I'm done talking about that. Thanks for attending my TED Talk. I'm not going to take anything away from Tennessee. I'm not. That was a hell of a game. They played great. You can sit here and complain all you want about the refs or you can look ahead. There's still a big season ahead for Alabama went out and meet Georgia or Tennessee in in Atlanta. The biggest test you're going to have is at Ole Miss in November. But, man, I really want to see Tennessee again. I really want to see them. And, by the way, Tennessee should be the number one team in the country. With the season they're putting together, the teams they've beaten, the points they've scored, the performances they put on, they should be the number one team in the country. And that's just a fact. Let's get down to business. The Carolina Panthers have finally parted ways with Matt Rule. Only five weeks into the season. We are now on week six. This happened last week. I was going to record a podcast the other week about this news, about other topics, but had some technical difficulties with the audio. Couldn't get the podcast out, so we're talking about it now. Just as Rule was starting his third year on the contract, which he signed in 2020, 11-27 overall record in 38 games. That's 
pathetic. And on top of it, Rule is going to make over $800,000 a month for the next 48 months, courtesy of the Panthers' initial contract. Thank God he's gone. I mean, how long did it have to take David Tepper to realize this was the obvious move for the franchise? I knew it was going to be the last weekend. As soon as I saw the 49ers on the schedule, I knew this was going to be the one. This was the recipe for disaster for Baker Mayfield up against the NFL's best defense. That game was the worst showing I've ever seen from the Panthers franchise, fan-wise. The game was horrible, but fan-wise, that was the worst performance I've ever seen in the Bank of America Stadium. It was full of red jerseys, like 75% Niner fans. Whole lot of red up in there. And the Panthers fans who did show up were chanting fire rule the entire game. I can understand why Tepper saw potential in the hiring of Matt Rule. Tepper comes in as the owner of the Panthers in 2018 in the midst of the initial rebuild. And who else better to get than the rebuild king of the college game, Matt Rule? You can't take those accomplishments away from him in all seriousness. Rule turned Baylor from a one-win team to an 11-win team within three years amidst all the allegations that Baylor faced. I mean, how hard is it to bounce back from that? The answer is extremely hard. You lose recruits, fans, you know, assets, sponsors, everything. So great on his part to do that. I really do mean that. But honestly, he shouldn't have left. Because as many legendary collegiate coaches know, such as Nick Saban, the NFL is a different game. The locker room was never won over by rule. Not once. Not even an inkling. They didn't buy into his system. He threw players under the bus. He was rarely man enough to own up to his losses. He was a loser in the NFL. I'm not saying that to be mean. I think he's a great human being probably. But let's just point out the obvious. 28% winning percentage tells you that. According to reports, the quarterback play of Baker Mayfield is what prompted Tepper to put an end to Rule's tenure. And man, do I feel bad for interim head coach Steve Wilkes. He has to take all of these problems, like the quarterback one, and try to make it better without his top three quarterbacks, who are all on the injury reserve following Mayfield's ankle injury. He's still going to be out for a couple weeks. Didn't play this week against the Los Angeles Rams. How is a guy supposed to make things better when he has absolutely nothing to work with? That is why Tepper cannot be let off the hook so easily. During his time as owner, Tepper has fired two head coaches, the first was Ron Rivera in 2019 after he began the season 5-7. and seven. Seemed like a much easier choice for him than the one that just occurred with Matt Rule for some odd reason. And fans were upset because obviously Ron Rivera is loved in the city of Charlotte, took them to a Super Bowl, was the leader of that team. Players loved him. But anyways, two head coaches. Teddy Bridgewater, Cam Newton 2.0, Sam Darnold, and now Baker Mayfield, four quarterbacks in four years, all of which have been horrendous. When Rule was the head coach, the Panthers spent over $72 million on these four quarterbacks. This blame can't just fall on the two fired head coaches. Tepper signed off on these moves, and clearly nothing has been working. The media, the fans, they're starting to realize the fraudness of him. And not to mention the firing of defensive coordinator Phil Snow, too. And that was a surprise to me because... The way the Panthers team has been anchored by this defense, if anything, you need to fire Ben McAdoo. 
quarterback play is what causes you to have the final straw, then get rid of the guy who's calling the plays for him. And as we saw this week against the Rams, he's incapable of play calling in the NFL. He just is. He was bad with the Giants, and he's not very good here. He has to be next on the chopping block. I don't know how he still has a job. And uh, I know I'm coming across as extremely pessimistic here. I'm just, you know, I'm very passionate about this team. I want to see them succeed, want to see them do well. And these are not the right moves that are being made right now. And as a fan, you have to appoint this accountability. If you want to see success, you have to point out the problem sometimes. I don't want to be in this position right now talking poorly about the way my team is performing or talk about how our front office is falling apart, but I have to. Let's look into the future for Carolina. Baker Mayfield, even barring a return, he's not going to be the long-term answer for this Carolina Panthers team. With him out for a few weeks, the chances of the Panthers moving to 1-7 or 1-8 is growing, and with that comes the possibility of the number one overall pick in the draft. If they do get the number one pick, who do they take? There's options in this year's talented draft class with lots of holes that you could potentially fill out for this roster. The Panthers, as we know, took Matt Corral in the third round of this year's draft. He's out for the season with a foot injury. Pretty sure that occurred in the preseason, which now brings up an enticing debate. Should the Panthers take a gamble on Corral's recovery and view him as the future quarterback for the team? Or do they select Alabama's Bryce Young or C.J. Stroud in the draft? And the options don't really end there either. They could decide to take the overall best player in the draft. For example, Will Anderson's going to be on the board at number one. You're telling me that you're not going to take him? A generational talent to add to your already top 15 or top 10 defense, which is where I think it could be. Personally, that's what I would do. And this is why. Because great defenses can carry you to nine wins with below average quarterback play. Just look at the New Orleans Saints from last season, led by Taysom Hill and Ian Book. I know Jameis Winston got injured. He won them a few games in the beginning of the year. But they had a top five defense and went nine and eight in the same NFC South division. And they were pretty good. A linebacker duo of Shaq Thompson and Will Anderson would be feared across the entire NFC. It would. And I've seen people argue this debate with me. I know that long term, your defense is not going to take you to a Super Bowl or take you far in the playoffs. But we're not talking about a Super Bowl or playoffs right now. We just want to get over this struggling hump. And I think right now what you have to do is make your team the best it can be. Because if you get a quarterback like Bryce Young, let's just say we get let's just say the Carolina Panthers select Bryce Young in the draft. What is he going to do with that offense? What is he going to do? Yeah, he's a great playmaker, but this is the NFL. This is not collegiate football. There's not going to be any offensive weapons for him. Nothing, especially with the developments we're seeing as of late. That's why I think that just adding the best player you could possibly get and then building around him, as in Matt Corral, I mean, that's the best move to do as of right now. To sum this up, I'm realizing that David Tepper is an impatient owner. He makes irrational choices that are gambles, and those gambles are not working out. And guess what? The Panthers don't have time for a five- to eight-year rebuild. Unfortunately, I think that's where we're heading. But fans aren't going to show up, so go ahead and do what you do best. And I actually mean this. 
You need to get rid of DJ Moore. Send him away at the trade deadline. I'm hearing that the Titans are interested. Whoever needs a wide receiver, maybe Green Bay, send him there. Get rid of Baker after this season. His contract is up after this year. This means that Sam Darnold and Matt Corral are going to be your guys at quarterback. With Darnold having another year on his contract, it kind of makes sense even though you don't want it. You don't want to spend any more unnecessary money that you have to spend. We saw that mistake with Baker. I mean, you still have P.J. Walker who, in all seriousness, didn't play poorly against the Rams. Honestly, didn't really throw the ball that much either. Just as well as Baker's done all year long and kept them in the game with the help of Christian McCaffrey. Panthers had a little over 200 yards of total offense on Sunday. And 158 of those yards came from Christian McCaffrey. And I know it's crazy to say this after what just came out of my mouth, but we might have to get rid of Christian McCaffrey. And yes, I'm not even joking because he only has a couple more years left at trade value before teams lowball you in trade offers. So do it now if you want to complete the rebuild that we're discussing. And right at this moment, we've heard trade rumors surrounding Christian McCaffrey. The Panthers are officially listening to other teams about a potential trade for him. Sources are saying that this deal isn't going to be easy to complete. The Panthers want draft picks, multiple first-round picks from what I've heard. And that's a good thing. What I just said, if you're going to trade for Christian McCaffrey, let's, let's send him now because you're going to get all of these first-round draft picks that you want to get in return. We're not going to let them walk for a bag of chips. You cannot have a DeAndre Hopkins scenario where you trade away your best offensive weapon for a fourth and sixth round pick. Over the last two seasons, I've been happy with our draft picks. J.C. Horn is a beast. Ike has shown tons of growth over the last few weeks on that offensive line. In fact, he had a PFF grade of 92.1 against the 49ers, which was actually the best single week grade of any tackle in the NFL this season. So he's a special talent. Lots of upside there. If you can obtain two or three first rounders, maybe a second rounder in there to get them to bite, it would be huge for the Panthers. Hypothetically, if you do get the number one pick, you take a QB or at least the best player available. You have more picks after that to fill the holes of the secondary O-line. I mean, that's exactly what you want because these guys don't want to be Panthers anymore. You look at Robbie Anderson this weekend. Gets into a screaming match with wide receiver coach Joe Daly. Then pouts on the sideline the entire game. Then tries to come up and play. Steve Wilkes throws him out of the game. His time as a Carolina Panther is over. Send him on a plane to Baltimore, Green Bay, wherever he wants to go. It's not going to be here. And that's what I said yesterday when all that was going down. The news just came in today, less than 24 hours later, after the incident, Robbie Anderson is going to be an Arizona Cardinal. The Panthers will obtain a 2024 sixth round pick, 2025 seventh round pick, whatever. I don't really care about that. I'm just happy he's gone. That was absolutely ridiculous what we saw yesterday. The Cardinals pick up Anderson immediately after the news that Marquise Brown might be out for the season with a foot injury, but we are seeing developments that he might only be out for six weeks. We'll have to see on those updates. It keeps changing literally every single hour, so not really sure right now. It's going to be either six weeks to the rest of the season. Hopefully, for his sake, it's on the side of caution with six weeks. 
So now Kyler Murray has Anderson, Marquise Brown, and DeAndre Hopkins, who is coming off the suspension he served for six weeks due to PED usage. And to talk about them for a second, this doesn't fix their offensive struggles beginning in the year two and four. Last in the NFC West. Having Hopkins is huge, but he can't carry an entire offense like he used to. Anderson will be, eh. He put up over 1,000 yards with Carolina in 2020, was a big part of our offense. Barely graced 500 last season. Major drop-off. And maybe you can correlate that with the quarterback play of Sam Darnold, but also he had Bridgewater in 2020. So how big of a difference is Sam Darnold to Teddy Bridgewater? Not very much. But anyways, I was never a fan of him really. Doesn't really play with heart. Threw his QB under the bus. Poor energy all around. Was not happy about having Baker Mayfield in Carolina. Then tried to act like he did nothing wrong in the post-game press conference yesterday. He said he had no idea why he got sent to the locker room. That's ridiculous. You knew what you were doing the whole time. And Wilkes is not going to put up with it. Things are getting ugly in Carolina. Like I said before, Matt Rule leaving was just the first domino to fall. And I know it's going to be a massive rebuild. At this point, it's the only thing you can do. You can't continue to have players on the team who don't want to be here. You need youthful talent full of spirit, competitive edge, competitive attitude. You aren't going to win a lot of games right now, and that's just the way it is. But you can come out and try to be better every single day and grow as a team and think long-term. Have some camaraderie for your coach who is put in the worst spot out of any current coach in the NFL right now. It's just sad to watch in all seriousness. It's going to be a long road for the Carolina Panthers. It's going to be interesting to find out new developments around the deadline. And we'll just have to see what happens over the next coming weeks. All right, guys, to finish up the show, I have a list of five bold takes for this season in the NHL. The season kicked off action last week, early on Tuesday, I believe it was. I've been glued to my television whenever I can. Can't wait for this season. I've been watching a concerning amount of hockey already, to put it lightly. So let's get to this list. Bold take number one. Patrick Kane will be traded to the New York Rangers during this season's trade deadline. There were a lot of rumors going around this summer that Kane could be on the move. He denied the multiple reports that were swirling around that. But a struggling franchise in the midst of a rebuild in Chicago, it could happen. They traded Kirby Doc to Montreal, which was a massive mistake on their end. I know Kane and a lot of fans were not happy about that move. They have to fire their head coach last season early on after a horrendous start. I forgot what their opening record was, but I think they won like five games in their first 20. Everything is in disarray right now in Chicago. Why does New York make sense then? Why not anyone else? Well, because even though New York has no cap space available for him. They have by far the best trade package available for Patrick Kane to send to Chicago full of young assets, which is exactly what they would want. Philip Heedle, Alexis Lafreniere, Capo Caco. You can send picks over as well. Would the Rangers do that? Eh, I'm, I'm not really sure as of right now. That remains to be seen. And it really depends on how those three guys produce throughout the first half of the year. If they performed like they did in the postseason, I don't think they would because they were so productive for the New York Rangers in the postseason. That's exactly what they needed. Big part of their Eastern Conference Finals run. 
two wins away from the Stanley Cup final. But I know Heedle is on his last year of contract, and they won't have enough room for him anyways in the summer free agency period. He's probably going to be on the move. So maybe if you were to send him and a few picks over to the Blackhawks, maybe they could budge, but I don't think they would. You'd have to make some more assets available with that trade. At the end of the day, though, it's Patrick Kane. He's still an amazing player, even though he's getting a little bit older in age. He would be reunited with his former line mate, Artemi Panarin, which is, I know, another mistake that Blackhawks fans know that they made. This would be a massive move for the New York Rangers to make a Stanley Cup run. They already have the team to do it. They're off to a great start so far this season. This would just be the cherry on top of the icing. Bold take number two. Spencer Knight of the Florida Panthers will win the Vesna Trophy this season. He's taking over for Florida in the crease. He's beaten out Sergei Bobrovsky, and I think he's absolutely earned that right. 13th overall pick in 2019. He was that high for a reason, and through his career, he's been putting up some crazy numbers for a raw talent considering that he was a backup the whole time. Through 36 starts, he's 23-9 and with a 90% save percentage. The Panthers gave him a three-year deal over the summer, so clearly he's their guy for the future. Florida is also going to be great again this season, which means the starts he's going to make is going to result in a lot of wins. I've said it before, I thought they lost the Calgary trade, but as long as he turns up his game, they'll be a threat to come out of the Eastern Conference, and if he keeps racking up those wins, putting up great stats, he could absolutely be a candidate for the Vesna Trophy. Bold take number three. Cole Caulfield will have more points than anyone in his draft class from 2019. Staying on track with that 2019 draft class, this kid is literally the same height and weight as me. He's 5'8", 165, probably more like 160, which is crazy to think about. You know, I love the connection that he has with his head coach, Martin St. Louis. He's a Hall of Famer, and if he's not, he should be. He was a pioneer for undersized players in the NHL, played for so many years, most notably in Tampa Bay, won a Stanley Cup there. But Cole Caulfield is going to have a breakout season. We saw his production during their Stanley Cup run a couple years ago. The kid could fill up the net in a big way. The Habs had a horrible season last year, but I think him, Ryan Suzuki, and now Kirby Doc, they're building something there. That's a great young trio they have in Montreal. You think of the other names in that draft class in 2019. Doc was the third overall pick. This class was loaded. You have Jack Hughes, Capo Caco, Moritz Sider, Trevor Zegris, Bowen Byram. That's why we're calling it a bold take, though. I think he's going to find a groove. He's going to make that connection with his teammates, his coaching staff. It's only a matter of time before he starts lighting up the stat sheet. Bold take number four. The Calgary Flames will win the Stanley Cup. And bold take number five mixed in with this prediction. Jonathan Huberto will win the Conn Smythe Trophy as the Flames get crowned champions. Talk about a redemption story that's just waiting to happen if it comes true. I think the Flames have some really good pieces in place that are in place to go all the way. We saw last week in their second game of the year, they absolutely dominated the Colorado Avalanche. And I think a lot of that had to do with the goaltending situation that they have in Calgary versus what they have in Colorado with Pavo Francois. Markstrom is miles ahead. You know, top to bottom, you can compare those two rosters, pretty comparable, but it all comes down to who's in net, especially in the postseason, as we know. 
You get the money-hungry stars out of the window with Kachuk and Goodrow. Instead, you bring in Nazem Kadri, former Stanley Cup champion, with the Colorado Avalanche. And now you have Jonathan Huberto from the Florida Panthers. You know, seasoned studs that can fill up the stat sheet and carry the production. You have other young guys in there, too. You know, Elias Lindholm comes to mind. And I think that a story like this would be a Hollywood script that's ready to be written. I love the Flames this season. I like Huberto to get the con Smythe. Those are my five bold takes for this NHL season. All right, guys, that is all for this episode of On the DL Podcast. As always, I appreciate you guys listening. Make sure to hit the follow button on the Spotify page. Hit the follow button on the Instagram page at DLSportsCom and share this podcast with friends and family. Thanks, guys, and I'll see you all next week.